0: The following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. We're back in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, and we'll be wrapping it up. But I want you to start off tonight in John, chapter 12. We're going to read a couple of verses there that kind of set the scene of where I'm going with this. And then we have a story at the end of the sermon that I'm going to share that really, really lines up well with it. I believe it's a story that I've been looking at and kind of saving for such a time as this. I know that's from the book of Esther, but we're going to use it from the book of Ruth. Uh, I was talking with Brother Richard just a few moments ago about the time of the year it is and gardens and everything that, Uh, We like to plant, we like to grow, we like to watch. We started talking about okra, and you know, my mind just kind of wandered back to the days when my grandpa used to grow okra, you know, one little bitty okra seed, and man, you could have a stalk of okra that's eight foot tall sometimes if you're a really good gardener, Uh, and it'll produce just hundreds of hundreds of pods of okra that'll have literally thousands of seeds uh, in and of themselves, so each one of those seeds will produce thousands more. But that one seed, first of all, has to go into the ground and has to sacrifice its life for the plant to sprout and those pods to grow. And that takes me back to what Jesus had to say about his life and the life of a Christian as well. And so as we think about the end of the book of Ruth and we think about what we're fixing to read that Jesus had to say, I want you to ask yourself this question. How how many lives is my life impacting Right now, that's something that you can most definitely measure uh, in the here and now. But when you think about it on a bigger scale than that, how many lives will my life impact eternally? There's just no way of measuring that, and there's no way of knowing. And so, in John chapter 12, Jesus gives us that concept of how much a life sacrificed and lived for Him could possibly impact. He's referring to his own life here uh, in this passage, but the concept for the Christian life and for the life of Ruth and the genealogy that goes on from that is pretty much the same. Uh, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. and He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor so as we think about the conclusion of the book of Ruth, one of the first things that I want to ask, we've got three questions we're going to address uh, in this concluding sermon. As you think about it, there are three main characters. It covers uh, Naomi's husband, her two sons, Ruth and Orpha's husbands. Uh, it, it covers Naomi's two daughter-in-laws. But the three main characters are Naomi, herself, Ruth, and Boaz. So point number one, or question number one, occurs in verses 13 and 14. Which of the three lives in the story of Ruth did God utilize the most? Is there really a way of gauging that? Is there really a way of judging that? Verse 13 and 14 says that So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went in to her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. So just reviewing their names in themselves, uh, the name Naomi means pleasant, but we realize that when she came back to Jerusalem, after she had lost her husband and her two sons, and one of her daughter-in-laws decided to part ways, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, I'm not pleasant, call me Mara instead, which means bitterness. And as we think about some of the things that Naomi said, we go back to chapter 1, in verses 8 and 9. It's what she told her daughter-in-law, she said, "Uh." Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So Naomi's nature was to take care of their daughter. She wanted to see that her daughter-in-laws were happy, and she gave them that option. She actually urged them, Go back home to your family. Go start your life all over again. One accepted the offer, and she went back, but Ruth declined the offer. She said, I want to stay with you. As we think about Ruth and her life, the name Ruth means the act of seeing or sight or something worth seeing, or basically friendship is what Ruth's name means. In Ruth's response, her famous quote in this whole book is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Ruth said to her, she said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. So that goes back to that comment that Jesus made back in John chapter 12. Ruth Ruth was saying, wherever you die, I'm going to die. And from the life of Ruth and her passing away, her obedience, her following Naomi, and her wanting to draw closer to the Lord, her life became something so magnificent. And so much came from her life because she was devoted to following her mother-in-law. And she was devoted to following the Lord and drawing close to the Lord and finding out who this God that her mother-in-law loved so much and followed herself. And then we look at the hero of the story, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. His name means strength of fleetness. I look back at some of the quotes that he had and some of the, the passages we covered that he was in. And he looked at Ruth's life. He looked at what Ruth was doing, and he wanted to bless her. He wanted to help her. And in chapter 2, verse 12, the, the verse that jumped out at me in Boaz in his life, it says, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So I've kind of been waiting a long time to say this. I I, I left this for the last. So at the beginning of this story, Boaz was not a very kind person. Uh, you could actually say that he was a little bit ruthless. Boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that James is not here. James has kind of been waiting on that one. But uh, All throughout this story, man, I, Boaz just showed kindness. I think he was probably one of the more kind, especially there in this day and time. You remember I was talking about this happened during the period of the judges, which is a dark, depressing, uh, oppressive time. Uh, Someone like Boaz just really, really uh, stood out in the background of what was going on in the time frame of the book of Ruth. And so anyone that greets his employees by saying, the Lord be with you, I think is an overly kind person. He was never, ever ruthless, if you want to call it that. But I think he was an overly kind person who really loved the Lord, who genuinely had a heart for helping people so if you had to put a mark on any of those three people, who would you say that God utilized the most in his overall grand scheme of things? I think it took all three of them. I think you can basically look at the story, all four chapters, all four seeds, and you can say that God utilized all three of these people. But here's the thing. All three of those people had to be willing to be used by God. And as you look at this church and many churches in our nation, as you look at uh, the overall uh, grand story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how many people God has used, he's been the ones who really had a willing heart and a willing spirit and wanted to be obedient and pursuing the things of God. So as you think about your life, uh, that one kernel of wheat uh, that has to be, passed away and to to produce more fruit uh, can you say that my life is a life that God is really going to utilize am I willing to give everything and sacrifice all that I have to be utilized by the Lord and so the next question I want you to ask is this uh, who has God used to help restore your life So if you think about the situation that Naomi and Ruth is in, Boaz was definitely the one that God used to restore their life to where it needed to be. Uh, Two widows in a a foreign land, they've come back home. Uh, Two widows trying to survive in a culture that wasn't technically friendly to widows. Uh, They come back and and Boaz basically helps restore their quality of life to where it needs to be. And as you think back upon your life or the place where you're at now in your Christian walk, uh, how many people or who specifically has God used to help restore your life? So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Maybe think about this later on today. Think back through your life about maybe the five sermons that you've heard in your lifetime that have really impacted where you are right now. That list is going to be hard to think of. Those five sermons are going to be hard for you to write down. But if you go back over your life and you think about the five people that God have used, the five relationships in your life, to bring, you can probably think of it just like that. Here's one person. Here's another person. Here's somebody else that God sent. Those, those five sermons, man, they come and go. There's some that have probably really impacted your life that you'll never, ever forget. You might not remember the person that preached them. You might not remember the specific topic or the passage that they used, but those five people, you're going to remember how old you were. You're going to remember what they did. You're going to remember what they said. And so, those five people are the ones that really help. That God really used to help restore your life and bring you to where you are right now. Think back to who had the greatest impact upon your life. So no doubt about it, God used Boaz to restore Ruth and Naomi. And he made a huge, significant impact, not only in their life. He was just doing what came naturally to him. He was being obedient to God. He was showing them the love and kindness of the Lord. And it made an eternal impact, not only for Ruth and Naomi, but for God's kingdom as well, as we're going to see here in just a little bit. So the person in your life that made the greatest impact, what type of person was it? What did they say? What did they do? Were they just uh, point blank with you about everything that needed to be done? Were they a teacher? Were they gently nudging you in the direction of the Lord? How did they know that you needed that little lift at just the right time? So as I think back upon my life, man, I can remember specific Sunday school teachers. I I can remember things that my grandfather said. I can remember hearing my grandmother pray. I I can hear my dad clearly saying, you know, if it's a job worth doing, it's worth doing right. I can think of all of those people that impacted my life. I remember as a teenage boy... Man, I had some Sunday school teachers. I had one of them, man, he would just break down and start crying, and I'd say, what in the world is wrong with this guy? I didn't understand at the time, but I understand now where his heart was and what he was trying to teach us. Now, let's turn this over the other way. Whose life are you currently involved in to help draw them closer to the Lord? Is there a life right now that God is using you to restore them to where they need to be? Is there a life that God is using you to utilize you the most in their life to make a significant eternal impact? Point number three. Verses 16 through 22. Here, here's the part that's going to be hard for you to grasp. Here's the part that's hard for me to grasp. Here's the part that is literally impossible for any of us to gauge because we just can't see that far into the future. We can see the here and now. But Point number three, here's a question that I want you to ask. What will be the eternal impact of your life. What seed are you planting right now that you just don't know how big it's going to get? I never will forget this story. Uh we one of my first years volunteering at Dry Creek Baptist Camp, we were volunteering at the preteen camp. I was staying in the cabins with the boy which Uh, You know, as a young Christian, I was wanting to do anything. Somebody asked me if I wanted to stay in the cabin. I said, sure. And then I said, what was I thinking? (laughs) They were hanging off the bunks and everything else. And there was one day uh, we were in the cabin with a church from another town. And uh, this older gentleman was there with us. His name was Mr. Ray. I called him Brother Ray. And, uh, boy, he just had a way with the kids. And uh, he said something to me that really made an impact in my life and the way that I do ministry. And so he was busy boy. Each one of his little boys would come by, give him a hug, and make sure that they had their uh, tokens for the snack shack and everything was ready for them to go for the day. And all the kids got out and the dust settled. I sat down next to him. I said, Brother Ray, I said, man, you sure have a heart for kids. I, I enjoy watching you interact with them. And he stopped for just a moment. And he looked at me and He said, You know, you just never can tell. That might have been the next Billy Graham that just walked out the door right there. And I said, wow, what a thought, you know. Whose life did God use to impact people like Billy Graham or D.L. Moody? Probably just a regular ordinary person like you and I. So that's what I want you to think about is what will be the eternal impact of your life. So in the story of Ruth, God takes what we view as a disaster And he turns it into a masterpiece for his glory and for his kingdom. Let's look and see how this story ends up. It's really incredible how this falls into the grand scheme of things throughout the Bible. Um, Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. The name Obed means worshiper or a servant who worships. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David, one of the greatest kings in the nation of Israel, came out of this story, this story that started off with a tragedy and loss and heartbreak and despair. Verse 18, now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. What an incredible insert, and what incredible detail the person that wrote this book, and securing the the lineage and the genealogy and writing it down and recording it for us to see just exactly what God was doing way back when Ruth and Orpheus' husbands, Naomi's sons, passed away. What we see in the beginning of this story is is an overall tragedy, man, a heartbreak. Two two ladies, one daughter-in-law was having to part way and go in a direction we just never can tell what kind of work God is going to do during a time of tragedy. During a time of great depression, during a time of, of heartache and sorrow, God is always masterfully working out a plan that's going to bring him glory and it's going to make an eternal impact as well. So those are the thoughts that I had as we wrap up this book. Is just the incredible detail that God had of working out, Uh, each and every situation of our life. And as I think about it, you know, do you find yourself right now in the position of Naomi? Do you find yourself in the position of Ruth? Or do you find yourself in the position of Boaz where I'm able to step in? I I can help someone out in a situation and I just don't know what my random act of kindness is going to do. I I don't know how God is going to utilize my generosity towards another person to maybe restore uh, their life to where it needs to be. And I just don't know what type of eternal impact my life is going to make. I want to share with you a story. This is a true story about two missionaries uh, It took place back in 1921. Uh, this missionary couple's name was David and Sevilla Flood. Uh, They were Swedish. They went to the heart of Africa, uh, to what was then called the Belgian Congo. Uh, They met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericssons, And the four of them sought God's will for direction in their ministry and their mission work and in their lives. And so in those days uh, of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice... They felt led of the Lord to go out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a very remote area. This was a huge step of faith for these four people and their family. And at the village uh, that they were located at, they were rebuffed by the chief of that village. Uh, He wouldn't let them enter his town in fear of alienating uh, the local gods. So the two couples opted to go about a half a mile up the slope and build their own mud house and begin their mission work out of there. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but they never found one. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chicken and eggs twice a week. And so the uh, Sevilla flood, she was a tiny woman, four foot seven inches tall, She decided that if that was the only African in the area that she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy in Jesus, and that's exactly what happened. She succeeded in that. There were no other encouragements as they continued their mission work and their ministry there. Meanwhile, uh, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. And in time, the Erickson's decided that they had enough of the suffering and they left to return to the central mission statement. But David and Sevilla Flood remained near the main village that they were at uh, and not to go on back to the main missionary town. Then, of all things, Sevilla found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened just a little bit and he allowed a midwife to help her. A little girl was born who they named Aina. And the delivery, however, was exhausting. And it was only 17 days after the birth process. uh, Her body was weakened due to several bouts of malaria. Uh, Sevilla passed away. And so inside of David's flood, something snapped. He he dug a crude grave. He, he buried his 27-year-old wife. And then he took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Uh, giving his newborn daughter to the Erickson's, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife and obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. And with that, he headed to the port. Rejecting not only his calling, but rejecting God himself. Within eight months, both the Erickson's were stricken with a mysterious malady. Uh, They died within days of each other. And so the baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted uh, her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. His family loved the little girl and was afraid that if they tried to return back to Africa, some legal obstacles might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, and there she met and married a young man Named Dewey Hurst. Years passed and the Hurst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter, then to a son, and in time her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area. And Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. Uh, She had no idea who had sent it, and of course, she couldn't read the words, but as she turned the pages, all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. There in a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Sevilla Flood. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight to a college faculty member who she knew uh, could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded The instructor summarized the story. It was about missionaries who had come to Ndolera long ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village The article said that gradually he won all his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. And today there were 600 Christian believers in that one village. All because of the sacrifice of David and Sevilla Flood. For the Hertz twenty-fifth wedding anniversary, the college presented them with a the gift of a vacation to Sweden. There, Aggie sought to find her real father. An old man now, David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had, reluct- uh, he had recently suffered a stroke, and still bitter, he had one rule in his family: never mention. The name of God, because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half brothers and half sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Aina, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, talking him gently and taking her him gently in her arms. God took good care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And he turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then, he continue, and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you. And it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 African people Serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look at his daughter's eyes and his body relaxed. He began to talk and by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to God He came back to the God he resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America. And within a few weeks, David Flood had gone to eternity. A few years later, the Hearst were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, where a report was given from the nation of Zaire the former Belgian Congo. I think you see where this is going. The superintendent of the national church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread to his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Sevilla Flood Yes, madam, the man replied in French. His words then being translated into English, it was Sevilla flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. And in fact, to this day, your mother's grave And her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug. And then he continued, You must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that is exactly what Aggie Hearst and her husband did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers, she even met the man who had been hired by her father many years to carry her back down on the mountain in the hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and gave thanks. And later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12:24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then he followed with Psalms 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. So this was an excerpt from Aggie Hurst's book, on the inspiring story of a girl without a country. This was her own words, her own testimony, her own autobiography. And so I just thought about how much that lined up with the story of Ruth and how God orchestrated everything. And in time that it seemed like everything was falling apart and everything was coming apart at the seams, God was actually weaving something together that was beautiful. Something that made an eternal impact. And something that eventually led to the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, my encouragement for you tonight is this. You may not see what's going on right now, you, you may not live to see the impact that your life is going to make. But just like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. God is orchestrating something and you you may be that one piece of the puzzle that God is needing. You may be that one life that God is wanting to utilize to bring someone else into restoration to impact their life for all eternity. And just like that day at Dry Creek Baptist Camp, you, you may deal with somebody that that might be the next Billy Graham. That might be the next D.L. Moody. That might be the next great missionary. That might be the next David in Sevilla Flood. You you just don't know how big of an impact your life is going to make until you say, God, here I am. Send me. I I want to be that kernel of wheat that you plant in someone else's life that produces much, much fruit. So as Nancy makes her way to the piano, we're going to have a time of invitation tonight. With every head bowed and every eye closed. I want you to think back to a time just a few months ago. Brother Sam Moore was here. We were in revival. Many of us, myself included, made a commitment. At some point in time this year, some point in time in the near future, we were going to step out of our comfort zone and we were going to share our faith with someone else. Are you still pursuing that commitment? Are you still honoring the, the commitment that you made to the Lord by saying, God, I want to be that one kernel of wheat that you use in someone else's life? Maybe you weren't there that night. Maybe you need to make that commitment. Maybe you need to step out now and say, I want my life to make an eternal impact by influencing someone else and helping them discover the God that loves them, just like Boaz and Naomi did for Ruth. So as the music begins to play, the altars are open We'll have just a few verses of invitation and time for you to do business with the Lord. Look around. Think about somebody you've seen here visiting lately. How can you impact their lives? Or maybe it's somebody that you know that should be here. Maybe a a church member who has become disconnected somewhere along the way. Maybe it's a neighbor that you know needs the Lord What are you going to do to impact their lives? And what kind of eternal impact is that going to make? The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.